Hello and welcome to a Carrick Institute podcast. Today we have Professor Carrick speaking on the topic of Parkinson's disease and intensive exercise therapy. If you'd like to learn more about the clinical neuroscience programs, as well as the new locations that we'll be teaching at, such as Chicago, Pittsburgh, Atlanta, Calgary, and Toronto, please visit carrickinstitute.com. Well, the other day we talked about level one studies that are pretty well classic in the treatment of Parkinson's uh, disease. And we talked about evidence base uh, a little bit. Well, uh, we talked about a few different studies and brought us up to the mid 90s. And now there's been a little bit of an explosion with interest that is looking at uh, physical modalities, specifically exercise and movement in the treatment of Parkinson's disease. We're gonna be talking about one of the review articles uh, published in the Journal of the Neurological Sciences by Elsevier uh, by the uh, Danish uh, group from Sanderberg Hospital and from the University of uh, Southern uh, Denmark as well as the Aarhus University. And that is the, uh, the meta-analysis of randomized controlled uh, trials by Urban, Steniger, Peterson, and Dalgas. In any event, uh, this is a paper that was published fairly recently in February of 2000, um, or rather in April of 2015. And they did a super, super good job. They realized that uh, Parkinson's disease is, is pretty fulminant now. It affects about 7 million people uh, around the world. And they identified the fact that there is, again, as we talked, the non-motor complications and the motor complications and delineated the motor complications as other people have done since the 19th century uh, with rigidity, tremor, uh, weakness of muscles and uh, balance and walking problems as well as fitness uh, problems. Now, they did talk about the sensory complaints and the dysautonomia, sleep disturbances and decreased quality of life that associate a fear of falling. And they said that, you know, these types of concomitants will adopt people to really not get off their butt. And this creates a, vis uh, a vicious uh, uh, cycle of physical inactivities. So uh, they went further on to talking about medical surgery and the problems with that. Uh, they talked about the side effects of drugs, uh, specifically the dopaminergic side effects and uh, and really highlighted the fact that the best treatments are really the treatments that we do in a functional neurological approach, although they look at this as basically exercise and movement types of strategies. So exercise therapy is defined as an individualized exercise prescription or a plan that's designed to restore health and prevent further disease or impairment. And uh, the, the, the type of exercise therapy is really uh, dependent upon frequency, duration, intensity, and is associated with uh, changes, as we know, with changes in bradykinesia, changes in gait, and other changes that has been shown to last longer than the initial therapy, but eventually will wither down uh, and you will lose it unless people will continue their individual effects. Recently, 
there's been a lot of evidence that has been suggesting uh, neuroprotective consequences of exercises. And certainly we know this in, uh, in rats. Uh, we don't have any evidence in humans right now. And whether you do one exercise or another, we really don't know which one is best. Although the karate or tai chi seem to work a little bit better than uh, other types of strengthening uh, types of exercises. In any event, the Danish group looked at uh, different exercise modalities, the resistance training that has been tested before, as well as uh, stretching. And they have evaluated the effects of three different exercise therapies, resistance training, endurance training, and a grouping of training modalities called other intensive ones. And they did a very, very good job with a meta-analysis where you simply look at all of the individual data, synthesize it, look at the good studies, level one, and then come, uh, come to different conclusions about what has been shown. So if you're gonna use dynamic muscle contractions against external loads and you're gonna have greater resistance as you go, uh, you're going to have resistance training. And this you can see with adding different weights or with adding different plates on a, a variable resistant isotonic machine, such as a Cybex or a Nautilus. And um, a, a type of resistance training is something that's very similarly done in gyms. But also we have endurance training. And endurance training is the same sort of thing where you're doing dynamic muscle contractions but the load is very low. We like to do that in the office. We'll put, for instance, little weights in the hands, or you can put arm or ankle cuffs and increase that individual resistance. But you can do this for extended periods of time in contrast to resistance training, which is a few uh, muscle contractions that are dynamically uh, resisted. When we do... Um, uh, training of any sorts, especially endurance training, we want to look at heart rate and classically uh, we want to get the heart rate up. We want to have a minimum of 60% of the maximal heart rate and we calculate that on the Borg scale and we look at the percentage of the heart rate and age and, and things like this that uh, you're pretty well familiar uh, with. So when we looked at the individual uh, meta-analysis by the Danes, uh, they did a very, very good job. However, uh, they had insufficient data to make valid meta-analyses on outcomes that were different uh, than you know the strength and things that people have done uh, before. So they, they identified six studies to look at resistance uh, training, and they looked at three studies that evaluated strength using more than one measure, so, such as knee extension or flexion and leg press. And uh, the effect sizes were computed. And this is very, very important because the effect size really tells you if there's a substantive significance in the individual study. So they've got a pretty darn uh, good thing that you should read. They started out with uh, 1,849 records and after they sort of culled them all down, uh, they included uh, sort of a minimal amount of studies. 13 studies were included uh, initially, 
after excluding 136 uh, studies and screening. And then uh, this came out to a total of 15 altogether with eight interventions on resistance training and six interventions on endurance training and four interventions which are more in the functional uh, framework. So you're not looking at very, very many altogether. Uh, and that tells us that we have a very good opportunity to contribute significantly uh, to the literature. So what do you know if you're gonna use any exercise or movements? And you know this could be like a stretching or resistance against you, a different type of technique that is common in chiropractic. Well, in the literature, there's no serious symptom exacerbations or any deterioration in any outcome measures, which means to say that you're not gonna make people worse. That's really an important statement to be able to, to make. Now, of the studies, of the 15 studies that were included, uh, nine of them significantly reported on adverse events, and there were none. That's important for you to be able to say that the research shows that when we do our therapies, uh, there is, uh, have been no reported serious adverse uh, events, and this is uh, pretty good. Now, people do have problems though, so you should tell them in your um, patient talks when you're giving uh, a description of your therapies that there are some events that happen because of therapy that are non-serious, and these are uh, pain and soreness in, in a limb or inflammation, or if you've got a, a pre-existing injury, uh, then, you know, it can get worse. But it's important to realize that these sort of things that you get from exercises are no different from individuals that are healthy that start to walk or do individual exercises. You know that uh, in a functional neurological model of treatment, we're very concerned with falls. Standing up is a is a main cause of falls and people hurt themselves or kill themselves with falls. So in all of the meta-analysis of, of therapies involving exercises and Parkinson's disease, falls were investigated in only three studies and they didn't show any difference at all between a control group. So uh, when you treat people uh, with the things that we do, they don't have an increased rate of, uh, of falling. Now, when you look at drug, and many of the patients you see with Parkinson's disease will be taking uh, levodopa. And four of the 15 studies reported by the Danes reported on the use of drug, and two of them reported that the levodopa use uh, of the patient didn't change during the course of the, of the study. Now, uh, there's a paper by Korkos uh, and group that is reported in the Danish study and they reported the values on levodopa at the baseline and then at uh, six months, a year, 18 months, and 24 months afterwards and found that there was no significant differences between the changes in levodopa use in the resistance training and the active control group. And the resistance training group actually increased levodopa usage after six months. And um, there was not a, a report of whether things are statistical or not. So really important for you to realize patients will ask you, well, doctor, when I come in and have this functional neurological treatment, am I going to be able to get off my, uh, my L-DOPA? And the answer is probably not, according to the evidence. Now, if you have experience in your patients that the dosage level 
uh, is titrated down, then that is something that we should report. And I'd like to hear uh, from you. I have seen that personally on a lot of patients, but we have not uh, reported this and that's not so responsible, but it's, uh, it's the actual truth and the time. Again, uh, level one randomized controlled prospective studies we haven't done and our level is about a three with anecdotal uh, review so it it doesn't make it into these individual studies it's not thought to be of a significant evidence-based um, integrity to to make the cut now what do people do with their training regime they know that they don't walk they don't stand so well so a lot of the training, especially in regards to resistance, involves the lower extremities. And that's something that we do very, very faithfully. And, and basically, uh, the hamstrings, triceps suri, and the quadriceps uh, are exercised. And usually, people use machines uh, to exercise them. Uh, a lot of people uh, will do upper extremities, but the greatest input seems to be on the lower extremities, upper extremities, again, with patterning and karate and things like that. So how do people prescribe their exercises? What will you be able to do? Well, basically, uh, people prescribe the usual three sets of exercises of 5 to 20 repetitions, and they do these uh, sets at 40 to 80% of the first repetition maximum. So each secondary repetition is a little less weight or resistance than the first one. Whereas the endurance training regimen involving the lower extremities is usually walking and usually on a treadmill where it's pretty safe. Uh, although uh, many people are put on bikes or ellipticals and uh, onwards we go. We used to use the upper body ergometer uh, by Cyvex, which I loved. And uh, I don't think they're making that anymore. I haven't been able to find one. Uh, we did have a chap out in uh, Arizona uh, that uh, built uh, an upper body ergometer, but I don't know if he's, um, if he's selling that at all for anybody uh, right now. The biggest thing, if you're going to do endurance training and you're going to use the arms or the legs, you want to make the people work and bring them up to 60% minimally of their maximum uh, heart rate. Now, the other stuff, the funky stuff that's not resistance and not endurance is largely what, what most chiropractic neurologists use. And this is the, the other types of treatment which involves complex movements. Uh, and again, boxing, karate, uh, tai chi, pattern types of aspects and combinations of different resistance training and endurance training. Again, measuring heart rate up to 60 percent and then doing different repetitions. So um, when you, you look at your patients, you want to have baseline activities and then you want to have outcomes. And if you look at simple measurements, everyone before used to look at um, grip strength and had those hand dynamometers. Not a bad idea, but there's other things that you can look at to isometric lifting loads. And uh, you'll find that in half the study, the strength is is measured and they report significant increases in strength measures uh, in the majority of patients after you know a, a month or, or two months of of uh, working and then some people will report it over a period of time. Now Corcos showed increased strength after uh, six months 
uh, on and off medication. And that's something that we saw in the Gothier study uh, that came out of uh, the late 80s, the work and work in the mid 90s. So um, what do we find in regards of cardiorespiratory fitness? Only one study made the cut in this meta-analysis and balance were assessed only in two and they didn't report uh, uh, anything or improve subject balance uh, perhaps, but really not any objective measures. And we think probably because the mechanism measurement wasn't so very good, you should have a force plate posturography such as CAPS or BERTAC or, or something like that. Walking is super, super great. We know from previous studies in the 80s and 90s that we had uh, improved speed of walking. And this was seen, of course, in the, the meta-analysis. So the velocity of walking was markedly better. Stride velocity is better. Cadence is better. Uh, gait initiation is better, which means decreased freezing or hesitations and uh, onwards and onwards we go. So you want to review that type of activity. Now, what we use in our clinical procedures are the UPDRS scales, the uniformed, uh, Unified Parkinson Disease Rating Scale. Uh, how fast you can move your finger to your thumb, hypomemia scales, swinging, standing, etc. And this UPDRS uh, 3 uh, was measured in three of the studies. It really is a good one. And what is found after resistance training is a significant decrease of 10% in the UPDRS 3 scale, which means that they've improved uh, greatly, at least 10%, or that the, uh, there is a decrease in the rating scale, the scale of 1 to 4 and adding, adding up. Now, the Corcos study found a significant decrease at 6 months, 12 months, 18 months and uh, 24 months. So that was pretty darn great. Uh, quality of life, we like to look at that. We're looking at SF36 studies and some other uh, quality measurements in my group from, uh, from Cambridge. And uh, uh, again, we re it's reported in the literature that there's an improvement in activities of, of life. Most people are using the PDQ39s Again, we have not been using that uh, you know, actively, but we're going to be switching over to that PDQ39 uh, and uh, onwards we go. So people haven't been talking about it. That is a big area for us to look at in our combined research endeavors. And what about cardiorespiratory fitness? Uh, again, uh, if you do any sort of exercises, you're going to increase your uh, v, uh, VO2 peak uh, ranging uh, considerably, and this is found in the Parkinson's group as um, as well. So there's uh, moderate evidence that the endurance training can improve cardiorespiratory fitness in in Parkinson's disease, and that's pretty pretty darn good. So we know that can affect the UPDRS scales and the quality of life, as well as cardiovascular activities. Uh, strength again is another thing that we we find uh, occurring. Now, uh, we talked before about the functional reach test uh, improving, which means an improvement of, uh, of balance and, and onwards we go. So what do we find really at the end of the, the day? Uh, we find that the drugs don't do it. The surgery doesn't do it. 
but that exercise and complex movements really does uh, do this. So when we look at exercise modalities, we're really looking at some very strictly defined training modalities, uh, resistance, stretching, uh, and uh, looking at endurance types of, of therapy. And uh, this is pretty darn, pretty darn good. Uh, the clinical implications are such that um, rehabilitation can be very, very focused and combined with other types of modalities and uh, can really allow you to, to look at the evidence-based activity of the things that you are going to do safely and with benefit to the individual patient. So very strong evidence that resistance training can improve muscle strength in Parkinson's disease. And this is shown across the board. Uh, what does this mean? It means that you're going to have to include some resistance training in your patients. Now, do you simply just start giving knee uh, extension, knee flexion exercises and hip flexion strengths? One could say, sure, there's evidence for that. But you want to very specifically exercise muscles that are associated with an increased sway that you see in posturography so that if you are or if you are swaying with an ellipse and you're greater you know forward to the left and backwards to the right then you really want to start doing the the left or rather the right hamstring muscle the muscle that would be opposite of the anterior uh, shift that would be super super important and the ipsilateral um, quads so those combinations are really super in decreasing the shift uh, or the amount of sway in a direction. And, and that alone, by strengthening those muscles and increasing the, we're going to say, the central state of those ventral horn cells or increasing timing would have a probability of decreasing falls as a consequence of changing reflexogenic activity. But you can say it very specifically if you change the limit of stability or the sway characteristics in an ellipse uh, by doing this, then you've done something that is pretty uh, phenomenal. And this would give an indication in the, in the chiropractic neurological uh, applications, which is really something golden uh, in the gem box that contributes uh, to things that other people are not doing, I think, as well. So you base your activity on the uh, the evidence-based literature and the RCTs and then go a little bit uh, further. Uh, again, there's not a downside that's been reported in the literature with resistance training or endurance training. So it's very, very uh, safe. Uh, you want to, however, make sure that you don't um, you don't go greater than 60 or 70 percent of uh, their maximum uh, beneficial uh, heart rate and then onwards. Take on points, no deterioration in any outcomes, which means that your treatment is probably not going to cause harm. That's a big deal. That's the evidence base that your treatment's not going to cause harm. Drug is associated with different uh, concomitants, all sorts of side effects from tardive uh, dyskinesias on down. And of course, you know the uh, problems with uh, surgery in the brain uh, with uh, deep brain stimulation and other things which may have 
uh, an output that's good, but is also plagued with a lot of uh, complications. So it really is in our wheelhouse to be able to do things that are associated uh, with the uh, with the literature and to do it uh, and to do it pretty uh, pretty darn well, I think. And and, and onwards uh, and onwards we would we would go from there. So in the level two studies, in level two again, you're going down a notch where you're not having randomization in these controlled studies. We go back to 1981 with uh, some work by Gibbard and colleagues, and they looked at this crossover study and compared four weeks of active physical therapy uh, with the same same amount of time without any uh, individual therapy. Now. What these people did, Gibbert and group, is they looked at speech, gait, tremor, balance, rigidity, time, motor, tasks, and they basically didn't find any improvement with anything with uh, physical therapy. But people sort of poo-poo that uh, paper because it was pretty sketchy. It didn't describe the therapy sessions. It didn't describe the stats uh, very well. The evaluations were made immediately. Medications weren't weren't looked. So... Uh, it didn't really pass the sniff test. And this is really important to know the good papers and the bad papers. But what it doesn't mean is that you pick one that you like and say it's good. You have to formalize it and look to see. Now, another uh, second level two study looked at physical therapy and no therapy. And that is the Formizano paper from 1992. And what they did is they used a uh, uni- uh, they used a disability scale, the Northwestern University uh, disability scale, and they studied two groups of Parkinson's disease patients that were pretty well balanced for the severity of their disease, the length of time they had their disease and their age, and they looked at active or passive physical therapy as an outpatient. Again, over four months, uh, they didn't describe the therapy, but uh, they found uh, in, in this study that most measures didn't improve uh, either, but there was uh, an increase in walking uh, speed. So uh, onwards and onwards uh, we go in regards to, to that activity. And then the DAM study, uh, and that's by DAM and group in 1996, uh, looked at um, physical therapy intervention using conventional exercises um, and exercises without any sensory enhancement, such as doing the exercise in front of a mirror or using different colored blocks or using visual cues or listening to audio cue tapes. So exercise with sensory enhancement are things that we like to do in functional neurology, that feedback. So in the DAM study in 96, uh, it was a it was a long term study. It looked at patients that received therapy for a month's time. Then they had a rest period for three months, and then they came back and did the therapy again with rest. And then uh, after the second three months, uh, they came back and rested again and again. So this is a typical type of study. It's the get you back stuff. You know that there's evidence to suggest that people are going to do well for six months, but for sure you know, in the three-month activity. So if you see someone again, bring them back for your period of time. Now, uh, many of these individual types of therapies are longer 
than what you classically do in a uh, in a chiropractic neurological office. That is to say, these people give them therapies for a minimum of four weeks, a lot of times eight weeks or 12 weeks, whereas most of us do people uh, treatment plans, you know, give people treatment plans uh, for approximately a week or so, but we do it in a in a daily type of a uh, type of function. Well, what happened is is the DAM study was markedly better in its design and its implement and its implementation, and blinded uh, evaluators found that um, the groups both of them improved whether you give them the sensory feedback. So whether you stand in front of a mirror and do the exercise and patterning, or whether you wear little headphones. Uh, both of them got better and they didn't find a significant benefit of the uh, sensory cueing therapy program even though that's sort of things that we like to do we think well maybe more is better well maybe more is uh, is not better so interestingly in the uh, in the dam study a month after the second and third therapy sessions the conventional therapy groups were no better uh, than the baseline, but the sensory enhanced group continued to function with subjectively derived gait and motor scores that were at a higher level. Now, the problems or the critiques of the DAM study is that nobody does this. In other words, it's hard to get. So it's hard to extrapolate it, but I think uh, the jury is definitely out. And at the end of the day, in some of the activities, specifically gait and motor scores that are measured by the Northwestern University Disability Scale or UPDRS, that it seems that exercise with the sensory feedback or the added oomph uh, does have a better advantage when compared to other things. But in a whole load of the other evaluations, it really doesn't matter much. So if your concern is gait, if your concern is stance and balance, uh, then you really want to look at that or the, the quickness of movement or we say the, the decrease in bradykinesia, then you should augment your exercise uh, modalities with a, a sensory uh, feedback. And that really becomes uh, pretty, pretty darn uh, you know, exciting all, all the way around. So here, here's, here's the deal. Uh, when we look at the types of uh, therapy that we like to do in chiropractic neurology, it's sort of this uh, plural uh, therapies, right? It's not just like I'm going to give them ultrasound. You're doing a whole load of uh, of things, so uh, it's it's difficult to be able to. It's very difficult to be able to study. However, if we look at using the gold standard of looking at the UPDRS, uh, we can find that there is uh, pretty good evidence specific to uh, endurance therapy and resistance therapy, coordinated types of therapy to make a little bit of a, uh, of a difference. Now, when we look at the efficacy of movement and exercise or even you know, adjustments, regarding the prevention of, of complications or prevention of Parkinson's disease. We don't have any of that yet. The evidence is, insu is insufficient. So it, it really is important for us when people say, hey, 
Um, you've got these Parkinson signs. If we do this therapy, am I going to prevent Parkinson's disease? We just don't know. We can think hypothetically that that could be, you know, pretty darn cool. Um, and that we've got great possibility. We know that the treatment that we can use, non-drug and non-surgical, appears to have a greater uh, implication of positive outcomes, especially for gait, for balance, for stance, for strength, uh, for decreasing bradykinesia and for increasing uh, the speed of movement. So increasing speed of movement is defeating bradykinesia that we rate on UPDRS. So um, it's, it's useful stuff, the things that we've done. It's important to realize that the literature, although skinny, is really studied in Parkinson patients that have mild to moderate severity of disability, and most of them are already on anti-Parkinsonian types of uh, medications. Most of the treatments are one to three months. So if your treatment is a week or so at a time, you probably have a cost savings. And this is very, very important. Almost all treatment programs uh, use uh, physical exercises combining uh, both passive movements, things that we do, moving the person's arms and legs, or active movements where the patient does their own individual uh, exercise. At the end of the day, it's the movement uh, that's the most important, whether it is passive or active, or whether it's with some resistance or another. The fact is, is that there's no one single type of, of a physical exercise program that really is better at the end of the day than, uh, than other ones, except for the addition of a sensory feedback, that extra thing, you know, sound, mirrors, colors, you know, Hit, hit the system, uh, seems to give you a, uh, a better activity. Uh, what do you know after you see these patients and they feel really great? Is it going to last? Well, should last three to six months. That's what the literature shows. So uh, you're going to tell them, say, look, at, you're feeling great now. You can expect that uh, you might start to decay after uh, three to six months. So let's see you again for a week in three months. Or if you're doing great, that after three months, then we won't see you the next time to, you know, after six months. And that seems to be the rule. Uh, what we find um, after doing this for almost 40 years is that if you give people things to do at home and you keep reminding them, whether you send them an automated email or if you have nursing staff call them or if you put it on them to call you, that if they continue to do exercises, they continue to improve. And that uh, seems to be pretty good. If they increase their stability and they can walk and they can get out, it defeats the sedentary lifestyle that's associated with increased health benefits and, and all and all and all and all. So when we look at the things that we do, we need to have research. And you all have got patients with movement disorders. We'd like you to report on them how they do, the good and the bad and the ugly, uh, so that we can publish them. And we'd invite you to submit them uh, for our annual conference. It's attended by people throughout the globe. It's in Orlando, Florida in 2016. Uh, and we've got some big, big names. And uh, all of the uh, papers are, are published in uh, Frontier's uh, Journal of uh, Neurology. And that's got 
uh, 3.2 almost uh, um, uh, factor, if you if you would. I mean, this is is amazing. The impact factor on that journal higher than than most journals around one of the best in uh, in neurology. So let's uh, publish it. Let's look at different things. Let's look at placebo. Let's look at this, that, and the next thing. Well, I really am excited to talk about this, and we'll be talking about it in much more depth uh, during the Advanced Movement Disorders uh, lectures, which are geared for clinicians and practical applications. So thanks for asking me to talk about this, and um, I'll be speaking to you soon on another topic. Thanks again. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make a suggestion for future podcast topics, please visit us at the Contact Us page at careconstitute.com.